So if you think of any great impact that comes to your mind, do you think even for a second that one person or one event or one breakthrough created all that impact? No, absolutely not. They were all building on the foundation of those who had gone before them. And typically it was driven by multiple people with hundreds, if not thousands of tiny incremental successes and failures. And that's what led to the quote major impact or the major breakthrough. Welcome to the Journey to Impact podcast, where we show you how to turn your unique passion into a strategy to change the world. This is part two of defining your unique impact. In this episode, Ed's going to help you narrow your focus when it comes to your area of impact. If you don't have focus, you can easily get overwhelmed when you look at all the different directions you could go, or you try to take on every aspect of reaching a desired outcome. Just like a football team, every player on a team has the same goal of winning but each player is focused on specific assignments and strategies to achieve that goal. That's why this is the journey to impact. It happens by taking one step at a time, and Ed's about to help us with that next step. It's time to get off the bench. Let's do this. Here's your host, Ed Gillentine. Thank you for joining us again in this second session in our series, on the basics of impact. I'm Ed Gillentine, and as we mentioned in our previous podcast, this is a series that's designed to go deeper into the ideas and principles in the book Journey to Impact. And I would again encourage you to purchase it if you haven't already done so, because it is a really good resource and reference point for you to use and take notes in as we work through all of these sessions. You can get it at our website edgellantine.com or you can just go to amazon or barnesandnoble.com if you live in memphis novel booksellers has it and also i'm excited to say that sweet lala's bakery now carries it sweet lala's is an impact organization that i get really excited about and it's been fun to watch them grow over the last several years um i would also (laughs) if i'm being candid Uh, I like them because they make one of the most amazing cinnamon rolls you'll ever put in your mouth. They're right across the street from my office. And so when I need to get away from the office to think or read um, or mostly to eat amazing sweets, that's my go-to place. But I digress. Let's jump right into session two. What is impact? The seemingly infinite scope of impact. In session one, we spent our time thinking about a definition of impact or framework of impact. Something that was broad enough to give flexibility as you grow and learn about your chosen sector of impact, but specific enough to give you some focus. And for purposes of our discussion, we defined impact as the action or actions of a person or group of persons coming forcibly into contact with a need or issue resulting in a marked positive change for the good of society. And you'll remember that one of the analogies we used was a golf club striking a golf ball and not only how it changed the object that it struck physically. You remember we talked about how you can see in the slow motion videos how that golf ball actually will change shapes for a fraction of a second before it flies down the fairway. So it it changes that, but it also has positive change, hopefully going down the fairway because of the impact of the golf club. We also spent some time diving deeper into the idea that your impact is unique to you. It's unique to your place in history, your set of skills, 
your life experiences. Nobody else has the same unique set of circumstances or passions that you have. And so while you're not maybe Martin Luther King Jr. or Mother Teresa, your impact is just as important because if you don't do it, it's not going to get done. You also had a little bit of homework, which was basically to dream and brainstorm about some areas or topics or issues that you're passionate down. And you really only had two sort of guidelines, I guess. Number one, write them down. And number two, dream big. Don't limit yourself. Now, in session two, we're going to discuss how your impact is seemingly infinite in scope. And there are a lot of reasons that this is an important discussion. But one of the primary ones is that as you get into defining and designing your framework of impact, it's really easy to get overwhelmed and give up. And so I'm hoping that during this session, I can encourage you and show you how a potential trap of the infiniteness in the scope of impact, how that potential trap to get overwhelmed and give up can become a source of motivation. And it's worth saying that not only is the potential definition of impact infinite in scope, so are the strategies, the tactics, and the metrics. But I would say that's absolutely why we have to commit to this challenging process of constructing our unique framework for impact. Because if we don't, we'll be constantly distracted, constantly wondering if we're doing the right thing. And equally as important, it's really likely that our impact will be diluted because of those things. So just like last week, I really want to give you a lot of freedom to dream, big or small, and not be constrained by others during this session. So we're not yet to the point that I want you to begin writing down your unique um, definition of impact, but I want you to start thinking and dreaming. So for purposes of illustration, let's consider at-risk kids, at-risk children. It seems like a very simple impact target, and it is. I would suggest to you that your impact mission statement, if you will, should be succinct and simple, just like your company's mission statement or your personal mission statement. But the scope can be pretty overwhelming. And when Liz and I first began to be drawn to at-risk children, we really thought it would be fairly simple. But quickly, we learned that there was a lot more to it than we thought. There are a lot of really smart, forward-thinking people in the field of at-risk children. But the guy that influenced Liz and I the most was a guy named Joe Bridges. You can Google him and check out some of his work. But he really challenged us to rethink the status quo on two things. The first one was, can we really be hands-on and effective with at-risk children? We thought so, but the real answer turned out to be no. And this was really a hard thing for us to wrestle with. Liz, my wife, is a pretty accomplished primary school teacher, taught second grade for a long time. And so she's really good at connecting with children. Um, She's really good at communicating with children. And we had expected that we'd be able to go to Ethiopia a couple of times a year, really help with some of these drop-in centers and with the kids and and actually be able to have hands-on impact. But what we realized when we got over there was that most of these children were so traumatized that another adult coming into their lives, particularly one from a different culture, caused more harm than good, right? And so ultimately we came to the decision that we needed to step back and become more of an advising and funding type of focus. And we put our energy into finding organizations that were being effective at the work in Ethiopia rather than us actually going and helping and playing games with the kids and those sorts of things. The second area that Joe really challenged us in 
was this idea of an institutionalized orphanage or a children's home that brought kids into like a system along a spectrum of more or less strict sort of guidelines. And, and think about like a, a Catholic orphanage or a boarding school type of things where they bring the kids in and it it's, can be kind of sterile. It can be really strict, which I totally uh, get that perspective. But as we looked into it, um, and as time has gone on, we've learned more about ourselves as humans, and we've realized how important it is for human nurturing, maybe three or four children with a mentor or foster parents versus 100 kids in a room with a very strict type supervisor sort of ruling over them. Maybe that little orphan Annie kind of thing to reference a movie. And we've learned how foster homes can be a better solution. Um, we've also learned how important job skills, educational needs are. And so we've learned that younger people need help transitioning into productive roles in society. And so I'm not, I'm not saying that how previous generations have done at-risk children or orphans or anything is necessarily bad. But if, as we've learned more, it's time to adjust. And so in Ethiopia, we wrestled with this idea of, uh, in Ethiopia, they're called halfway homes, but very similar to a foster home solution here with four to eight children in a foster home with a goal of transitioning them back to their families as their family got on their feet financial. And so as we wrestled with these questions, there were a lot more. You can see how it became much more than just raising money for a big building and lots of food and maybe a school. So as we built our framework for impact, we grappled with things like, are we going to focus on local or domestic or international at-risk children? Or should we have a diversified portfolio, that's sort of my financial background coming out, of all of those options, local, domestic, and international. Um, we talked about should we focus on funding or awareness? Um, should we focus on education or infrastructure or, or placement into these foster families? And a big thing for us was whether or not current research and current strategies with at-risk children have been really reflected on the ground there in Ethiopia, or were they still sort of theoretical? We talked about, did more research need to be done in specific areas? Do we need more training? All those sorts of things took us several years to work through. And, and candidly, we're still working through them in the this process of constantly trying to get better. And as you test drive some ideas like the halfway house, like the foster home idea, you find things that work and things that don't work. And so you're looking for constant improvement. So all of a sudden, something that we thought we would go down a couple of times a year, help with some at-risk children, and try to raise some funds, it got a lot more complex. In general, I would say to you that more focused is better, but that's a decision you're going to have to make. I would just encourage you not to make it lightly, right, and to take your time deciding about it. Ultimately, Liz and I ended up with a diversified portfolio, if you will, of local, um, national. So we, we work with organizations that help at-risk kids in our hometown of Memphis, but also in the United States. And then our international focus is primarily Ethiopia. And relative to what we actually do, we try to support organizations that are having impact, that are on the ground. And we spend our time meeting and talking with those folks and making sure that we're confident that not only are they trying to have significant impact, but they are open to change. They're open to trying new things. Another genre to uh, consider relative to the seemingly infinite scope of possibilities for impact 
would be the visual arts, right? Are you going to focus on a specific genre, abstract art, for example, photography, sculptures? Are you more interested in expanding the reach of the visual arts for people to appreciate? Or are you more passionate about expanding the opportunities for artists to grow in their work and reach? Another question I would have for someone getting into this area is, is art appreciation among the poor important? Would you rather seek out aspiring and talented artists who can afford advanced training and maybe provide that to them sort of like a scholarship? Again, I don't know what it might be, but I can promise you that the challenge is going to be narrowing down the almost limitless opportunities within that field, within that sector, to what I call the manageable few, or hopefully one, on which you can focus. So I think this is probably a good place for you to hit the pause button. Take a minute to pull out your notes from the last session and, and think about one or two areas of impact that really interest you. And then within those one or two areas, write down as many different opportunities for impact that you can think of. Again, within those areas. Try to take at least 15 minutes and just write. Again, it doesn't need to be perfect or correct. It doesn't even need to make much sense. Just dream and think and write. So now that you're back after that little exercise, you're probably starting to realize how many different opportunities there are, and they may be overwhelming, but don't panic yet. (laughs) You'll be coming back to this over and over as you go through this process of building your framework of impact. And as you come back to it, you'll continue to get clarity as you work through the process. Another reason that impact feels infinite in scope is that impact is incremental. And this incremental impact, the idea that impact is typically created by hundreds and thousands sometimes of tiny incremental impacts, it seems to me that many of those tiny incremental impacts can lead off into a myriad of other paths and experiments. Uh, sort of like looking at the back of a large antique rug. The back looks right like an unruly mess of tangles and snags, but when you flip it over, the front is a masterpiece. It's beautiful, right? So if you think of any great impact that comes to your mind, do you think, even for a second, that one person or one event or one breakthrough created all that impact? No, absolutely not. They were all building on the foundation of those who had gone before them. And typically it was driven by multiple people with hundreds, if not thousands of tiny incremental successes and failures, right? Failures are just as important as the successes. So you had thousands of these incremental breakthroughs across a relatively long period of time. And that's what led to the quote major impact or the major breakthrough. One of the things that I've noticed about incremental impact is that much of the impact was not originally intended to impact the area in which it ultimately had impact. I usually think of the law of unintended consequences as a negative principle, but it can also be positive. You think about how many incremental impacts were unintended. Think about where we would be without penicillin and pacemakers, both of which were accidental discoveries, and both of which would have initially been considered failures for their intended purposes. One of my favorite stories is about the discovery and the development of penicillin. There's a guy, Dr. Alexander Fleming, who is generally credited with discovering penicillin. Really, up to that point in history, one of the great catalytic discoveries that humans have ever made. And he stumbled upon it after coming back from vacation to his messy lab bench, right? And here's what he said when he made the discovery. One sometimes finds what one is not looking for. When I woke up just after dawn on 
September the 28th in 1928, I certainly didn't plan to revolutionize all of medicine by discovering the world's first antibiotic or bacteria killer. But I guess that's exactly what I did. But over the next 10 years, very little progress was made. I mean, it took years of experimentation um, to isolate the active ingredient, figure out which germs it was effective against, years to test it, and so on. One of the key figures in the story is a guy named Dr. Howard Florey. And he was not only a really fantastic physician and researcher, but probably most critical to the development of penicillin. He was a master at raising money and handling all the administrative issues. He actually conducted the first clinical trials based on Dr. Fleming's work. But just as importantly, he got a huge grant from the Rockefeller Foundation that was able to fund that research. And his organizational skills, his administrative skills, were really critical to the research and the development process that brought about the mass production of penicillin during World War II. Another one of my favorite people in the story was a young lady named Mary Hunt. She was the lab assistant. And in the summer of 1941, right, so think back on the the time frame, 1928 made the discovery. Now we're, what, 13 years later. Mary found a cantaloupe at the local supermarket that had what she called an interesting-looking mold on it. And evidently, part of her job was to scour the supermarkets looking for moldy fruit. Oddly enough, it was a task for which she eventually earned the flattering moniker Moldy Mary. Um, So Moldy Mary brought this now famous cantaloupe to the lab, and it turned out that that interesting-looking mold was the fungus Penicillium chrysogenium. And so this new strain or species yielded 200 times the amount of penicillin as the previous species, and ultimately was enhanced to produce 1,000 times as much as the first batches from the first strain of penicillin. So until Moldy Mary's serendipitous discovery, there was really no cost-effective way to produce enough penicillin. No matter how good it was, you just couldn't produce enough to have meaningful impact. So ask yourself this, was there impact? Here's some numbers for you. In the first five months of 1942, during World War II, 400 million units of pure penicillin were manufactured in five months. By the end of the war in 1945, so around three years later, over 650 billion units per month were being produced. In World War I, the death rate from bacterial pneumonia was about 18%, so roughly one in five, right? In World War II, it fell to less than 1%. So who was it that had impact? Was it Dr. Fleming who made the discovery because he was apparently in such a hurry to go on vacation that he didn't take the time to wash up the dishes on his lab bench? Was it Dr. Flory, that master fundraiser and organizational genius? What about Moldy Mary, who evidently purchased a cantaloupe at the supermarket because it had an interesting looking mold on it? Well, the answer is yeah, all three of them had impact, right? Along with hundreds of other scientists, doctors, lab techs, bookkeepers, have a soft place in my heart for bookkeepers and CPAs, production personnel, and even the janitors that kept the place clean, right? So I think in the story about penicillin, you can see the idea of unintended consequences. You can see the incremental nature of impact, and you can see the infinite scope of possibilities for impact strategies and sectors. So we've talked about a lot of ideas in this session, and hopefully you'll take the time to think through how this will relate to your unique definition of impact and your framework of impact. But I'll close with this. If you think about the seemingly infinite scope of impact, who can imagine the number of lives saved 
and the impact of those lives that can be traced back to Dr. Fleming's dirty lab bench in 1928. And you're right, nobody knows, no one will know, but we do know that it's significant. And that's why next session, we're going to spend our time talking about the impact of faith on impact. Thanks for joining us. Godspeed on your journey to impact. I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to part two. If you didn't get the free guide we mentioned in the last episode, be sure to download that to help you as you start thinking about what does your unique impact look like. You can get it in the show notes for this episode at edgillentine.com. That's E-D-G-I-L-L-E-N-T-I-N-E.com. Next time, Ed's going to talk about how faith is important on your journey to impact. You have to trust that you're having an impact because you may not see the results right away. But if you keep pressing on, it is worth it.